Man, Miles, Dracula's entry into the public domain really is the gift that keeps on giving. Seriously, Jay, he's a universal standard at this point. Every story must have a protagonist, an antagonist, and a Dracula. And he's so versatile. You'd think he'd be pretty horror-specific, but no, he's really genre-flexible. Superheroes, science fiction, you name it. Remember that time he narrated a biography of Twilight author Stephanie Meyer? What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 441 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera, and its spin-offs, including, this week, Generation X. Yeah, but before we get to that, 441. Wait a minute, that's our reality designation for the podcast universe, isn't it? Does that mean if we die in this episode, we die in real life? I think so. Um... Well, thankfully, these comics, like, they're not the best in the world, but I don't think they're nearly bad enough to kill us. We can hope. Freaking leprechauns aren't here. Scott Lobdell isn't writing them, so we'll probably be okay. I mean, I don't know. Dracula's in the public domain. You never know where he's going to pop up. Mm, true, true. Good point. Well, what's popping up this time, as you alluded to, is one of the X spinoffs, Generation X. We are covering some very odd but fun Gen X today. Right, we've got two individual issues, each of which is a one-shot story, and we've got an annual, which, as mentioned, features Dracula. So, what's been happening on Generation X lately? It's been a few episodes since we've covered them. So, Larry Hama's very odd run on Generation X is over, but the kids' lives and educations at the Massachusetts branch of Xavier School for Gifted Youngsters continues. And we have most of the usual suspects still around. Jubilee remains the fireworks pathing teen who keeps talking about the days when she ran with the X-Men. Skin remains a snarky pain in the ass with a bunch of extra prehensile skin. Sink can still copy other people's powers and is not particularly well-defined. Chamber still doesn't have a face. Uh, Husk still has the grossest power ever, and so on and so forth. Also, there's a pink-haired 13,000-year-old teenager named Gaia. Uh, she's at the school. Um, for somebody with undefined powers who spent millennia chained to a rock in an empty castle in another dimension, she's, uh, she's settling in pretty well. Good job, Gaia. Gaia is both surprisingly well-adjusted and surprisingly boring. Uh, yeah, yeah, she really does seem like a character that nobody ever knew what to do with, which is unfortunate, because you could go in some super bizarre and interesting directions with her, but, um, nobody ever really does. So... We've also had some revelations regarding the character M. Monet saint -Croix. The The short version of this, which we've covered at length in other episodes, is that the person everyone thought was Monet was really her two younger sisters merged into a simulacrum of the real Monet. And Monet herself was trapped in a red, razor-sharp body and couldn't communicate. Now it's the other way around. So Monet is in her own body, and her two sisters are occupying the body that was known previously by the name Penance. Yeah, it's like Psylocke levels of, huh? Meanwhile, Husk, that's Cannonball's younger sister Paige, who can rip off her skin to reveal any substance that she wants underneath, she went back to Kentucky uh, to visit her sick mom. Right after Chamber, and that's the guy whose initial psionic energy power manifestation blew off the lower half of his face, most of his neck and chest, declared his love for her by psionically burning a heart into a napkin. Um, and he, he couldn't communicate telepathically for a long time because of Psy War, whose effects are now over, and of which we will probably never need to speak again. Sonic screaming former X-Man Banshee and the telepathic former villain Emma Frost are still running the school. For now. That brings us to Generation X number 48, Foxes and Scorpions. Written by Jay Ferber, penciled by Terry Dodson, inked by Rachel Dodson, colored by Felix Serrano, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. So, Jay Ferber is the new Gen X writer. Uh, Jay will write the uh, Ferber, not uh, Edidin, uh, Gen X for quite a while at this point. And I looked him up. Um, these days, he's big into television writing, actually. Uh, most recently, I believe, he was one of the writers on the Supergirl Girl show. So this is, I guess, how he, uh, if not got his start, at least what he was doing decades before. Oh, right on. That was a pretty good show. I didn't actually see it, but I heard it was good, yeah. Well, in this issue, we start with a panicking jubilee floating through zero gravity in a damaged spacecraft. 
so until I saw that like the rest of Gen X was there panicking as well and realized this was a danger room thing, I kind of wondered if we were just jumping back into that uh, Banshee's Angels story uh, that was set in space that Al Kennedy and I covered a while ago. But uh, no, no, this is just set in the main continuity. We won't get to see former cop Bishop talking about the Donut Day riots. Man, they should pull that into more stories that involve characters pulled in from random universes. I completely agree. Bring back Earth-TRN, whatever the hell that was. But uh, yeah, this is indeed a Danger Room sequence, and that's a little odd because, as you may recall, Generation X's version of the Danger Room, the Danger Grotto, aka the Biosphere, recently um disappeared. Like, it just teleported away and nobody knows where it went. They replaced it with Shi'ar technology that Forge put in, which immediately became sentient and turned on the students, but which they then trapped again in the danger room setup, knowing that they were doing it this time. So now it runs as usual, I guess. Comics, everybody! So in addition to the kids being stressed out by the space scenario that is not going well for them— one of their headmasters, Emma Frost, is also pretty stressed, because in her office she's yelling over the phone at her financial planner, who apparently messed up her stock portfolio, and now she's broke. This should not be a problem for Emma, and she doesn't really see it as a problem. She's just going to do what she did at the beginning of the school, which is telepathically convince and coerce rich people into investing large sums of money, which seems reasonable to me. It doesn't seem great to Banshee, though, and this is a dynamic we've seen between the two of them since the start of Gen X. Emma is very well-meaning. She cares so much about her students and she gets shit done, but she's not always the most ethical person, whereas that is a priority for Banshee. Banshee, eat the rich. I mean, Banshee can be quite roguish, but in this case, he seems to really want to be a good role model for the kids. So he challenges Emma to figure out a way to do this ethically. Sure, appeal to my sense of competition, why don't you? I'm going to have to shake up my routine. You're starting to know me well enough to push my buttons. I miss these two so much. So many forgotten ex-friendships that aren't addressed anymore. Like, Emma went on to be a really big deal. Banshee just sort of disappeared and only showed up periodically. Do you think Emma even noticed that time that Moira ripped off Banshee's skin and wore it as a Halloween costume to get into Krakoa? Comics, everybody comics everybody so emma decides what she's going to do is swallow her pride and go to her older sister for help now this is not cordelia who is the sister we saw before that's emma's younger sister she was the one who helped uh plant mondo on the team eh? plant mondo oh i see what you yeah, did there yeah um no this is this is emma's older sister um who, who's never been mentioned before successful businesswoman and uh psychometric adrian frost We'll learn a lot more about Adrian in the first 12 issues of the Emma Frost ongoing from the early to mid-2000s. That was that really, really good series about Emma being a teenager and a young adult that bizarrely had the incredibly sexualized covers for the first handful of issues. But great series, really interesting. Yeah, those covers were enough to keep me from reading it when it came out, and I was really surprised at how little they reflected the actual content when I finally did. There's also another sibling that the Frosts have, that is Christian Frost, who is uh, institutionalized for being gay. Poor guy. He'll be a villain, and then he'll be less villainous. Uh, he's, he's around these days. It's complicated. Anyway, back in the Danger Room, Jubilee's pretty annoyed that M keeps criticizing her training performance, and she says, hey, she was pretty nice to M back when M used to zone out all the time, at which point Monet reminds Jubilee that that wasn't her, that was her sister's, one of whom uh, is autistic, and of course that's how that was portrayed in those comics. So the two of them decide they are going to work out their issues the old-fashioned way, which is to say with a competitive danger room session. It's really fun. They're fighting trolls in this holographic Asgard scenario, as Jubilee keeps referencing her time on the X-Men and pointing out that, hey, okay, Monet was Penance, sure, but she was even nicer to Penance than she was to fake Monet. And M, this is just bouncing off M completely. And Julie's just being so earnest about it all. Like, she really did try so hard to be kind to both M and to Penance. M points out, yeah, the way you did that, Jubilee, was by bringing me just apples when I was in my Penance form. Like, I was some kind of pet. What the hell? I would appreciate it if someone brought me apples. 
And Jubilee did do it so earnestly, and Penance did seem to appreciate that at the time. Like, this is clearly Monet just interpreting everything in the worst possible way, the least charitable fashion. And that's something that really interests me here, that we got used to what turned out to be a fake Monet St. Croix when it was her sisters impersonating her, who was kind of an arrogant jerk. And I wouldn't have expected the real one to actually be way worse. The actual Monet is just, for lack of a better word, mean. Yeah, I was going to say, the other Monet is, as you put it, arrogant. This one is kind of cruel and sees herself that way, too, because Jubilee asks, you know, why are you being such a jerk to me? Why are you just unwilling to accept any good intention? And Monet says, well, do you know the story of the fox and the scorpion? Yeah, so that's the one where a scorpion asks a fox for a ride across the river, and the fox is like, you're not going to sting me, right? And the scorpion's like, no, no, that would sink us both. We would both die and drown. And of course, then halfway across the river, that's what happens. And the fox asks why as they start to drown, and the scorpion says, well, I'm a scorpion. It's my nature. And that's fascinating because Monet is saying, yes, it's my nature to be mean, but she's also saying it's my nature to be mean even when it's a terrible idea and will ruin everything. Like, she recognizes that this is not a good idea and has no remorse for behaving this way anyway. A chamber, for his part, is worried about Husk getting home from seeing her sick mom because last time, as we mentioned, he silently declared his love for her. But he did it expecting that he wasn't going to see her for a really long time, and now he has to deal with the potential repercussions of having, you know, declared his love, namely that someone else heard and, you know, was receptive to it. I do like this. I do like in this book about teenagers that we have teenagers who are, well, teenagers. Like, shit's really awkward all the time and they have big feelings and don't know how to handle them. Yeah, uh, Skin's advice is kind of great. Jono, my brother, for a Brit, you're too emotional. You can't be talking about your feelings, especially not with chicas you got feelings for. That's right, repress like the rest of us. One of the things I enjoy about Skin is that he is just all of, like, the worst lessons that boys learn when they're growing up. Like, he's a sympathetic character, yes, but he's also just wrong about, like, half the things he says. Yeah, well, all of the kids are, and also Banshee's, I'm remembering Banshee's relationship Advice from the the last set of issues we covered? Oh, yeah, where he told Sink that women are confusing and you can never understand them and you shouldn't even try. And also, you're at the peak of your life right now, but it's all horrible. Everybody's just so messed up in this book, and it's so much fun. That's one of the things I really like about this. I liked it about New Mutants as well. I mean, I think X-Men at its best is this way also. These characters aren't just these superheroic paragons of virtue that have it all figured out. Like, they're deeply confused and conflicted people who make bad decisions for what seem to be good reasons at the time. Like, Marvel's always been good at that, even back in the Silver Age. You know, it's the world outside your window, that's always been the phrase. But it's also, like, the world inside your brain case. Like, this is how people act, you know? They're not archetypes. I mean, they can be archetypal, certainly. They're complicated people, and bad decisions happen, and that's the world. Especially teenagers. Especially teenagers. God, I made so many bad decisions when I was a teenager. Shout out to our teenager listeners, you will get better at this. Yes, I mean, actually, a lot of you are probably way better at being people than we were at the time. Like, uh, I think society as a whole has figured certain things out better. Certain things worse, but certain things better. We'll see. We'll see, we'll see. Uh, But yeah, when Husky gets back from her trip, she is so delighted to see Chamber. She is clearly smitten. She's clearly been thinking about that romantic heart-on-a-napkin gesture that he made before she left the entire time she's been gone. And so she just keeps chattering on, like excitedly telling him all these stories about seeing her family and just trying to connect and trying to share these things with him. She's so earnest and so excited. And Chamber doesn't know what to do. Um, and so he, he, in the time-honored way of X-Men, makes an excuse and bails. Not to Alaska, but, you know, just away. I do love the idea that that's just a universal Marvel Universe constant, that whenever you have an awkward conversation with someone and you don't know what to say, you go specifically to Alaska. Well, it might just be a mutant thing. Oh, okay, like, humans have lots of options, but that's just, like, the mutant haven. So Krakoa is the mutant nation where everyone has, like, solidarity and can be themselves, and Alaska is where all the mutants go when they're feeling awkward or want to mope. Alaska is very large, and you can wander around moping without really running into other people if you choose the location strategically. Oh, yeah, that would be really awkward if you're running around moping and you just run into other people who are moping, and you're like, oh, I don't want to mope with anybody else. I don't want to talk about it. 
I mean, there is a whole X Factor issue based on that rough premise. Good point. Good point. But yeah, this is why it never worked out, Chamber, when you hooked up with a pop star and uh, then Paige fucked Angel in the sky over her mom. Like, it just wouldn't have ever worked out between the two of you. Because Chamber can't fly? Well, that's part of it. The Dodsons here are great at just showing off Paige's facial expressions and body language as she goes from that enthusiastic glee to just this disappointed shock and surprise. I'm so mixed on the Dodsons. I mean, they're excellent artists. They work really, really well together as a penciler and an inker. They're great at showing facial expressions and body language. But at the same time, their characters all kind of look like each other. Yeah, they're very, very good at drawing, especially one specific woman. And she's very expressive, and she's very dynamic, and she's a lot of fun, but, like, she's kind of the character. Yeah, uh, and, you know, that's it's going to be that way with any artist. Like, there's always going to be some aspect you're not a big fan of and, and other parts you like, and, and that's fine. Like, I'm not saying that to condemn the Dodsons by any means, but that is noticeable. Yeah. Well, this is—it's something that is, is a quirk that impacts storytelling, so one of which I am less inclined to be forgiving than some others— just because it makes the comics more difficult to decipher. That whole thing where Husk and Emma look basically the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, now, speaking of, of female characters, so we talked about Gaia being written kind of boringly and, and just occasionally mentioning that, that she was chained to a rock for, for millennia. Um, and this, this comes up in, in this issue because Paige goes to her for romantic advice and Gaia responds... Um, hello, I've been chained to a rock for as long as I can remember. You're asking me for advice about men? I mean, that she was chained to a rock doesn't mean that she didn't have access to a library with a lot of romance novels or something. Well, she was chained to a rock. It would have to be within reach. That's not true. Um, she could have had had a smartphone with Libby. Oh, I, I hope she did. Maybe that's how she didn't completely lose her mind being chained to a rock for, I would like to remind you listeners, 13,000 years... Look, Miles, there are a lot of romance novels. Oh, and if you include fan fiction, then it's basically limitless. Yeah. We've talked about Steve Siegel's love of clever dialogue and narration transitions in Uncanny X-Men, and Jay Ferber definitely does that too in this issue. So the issue goes from Banshee telling the kids that if the, if the Danger Room session they were in was real, they'd be dead at the beginning— to Emma telling her accountant that he'll be dead if he doesn't fix things, from Emma pondering telepathically motivating investors, to Jubilee and M arguing about the concept of motivation, from Jubilee demanding a danger room fight with M alone, to Chamber saying he's scared to be alone with Husk. It's really fun. Like, Jay, I know you've mentioned that that can be annoying, but that's a technique you really enjoy. What do you think about the way Ferber does it? I think it's a technique that fits Generation X better than most teams and most books. Because Generation X has always been a little bit silly and self-aware um, in its writing and in its narrative voice. And that, that I think, serves it pretty well. I agree. And Ferber does seem to get the characters really well, I think. Like, they all seem very distinct. Well, except Sink, but uh, nobody seems to know how to write him. Speaking of characters that, that people struggle to write, the issue ends with the newest student arriving at the school, and this is, of course, Maggot. So you may recall, in X-Men number 79, Beast had helped Maggot transfer to the, the new Xavier school. Don't get too attached. He's not going to be around for long, which brings us to Generation X number 49, Trophies. Written by Jay Ferber, penciled by Terry Dodson, inked by Rachel Dodson, colored by Felix Serrano, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. And we start in the snowy woods around the Massachusetts Academy campus with a dude named Slaughter, a large, beefy gentleman covered in straps and pouches and winter gear and with a mustache that, like, probably has its own zip code. He also seems to have a techno-snowboard strapped to his back, which I respect. That is nicely extreme. At some point, someone should make a really, really wholesome character whose whose name is, you know, first initial S and then last name Laughter, who's really frustrated that people keep on getting it wrong and misinterpreting his whole deal. I love that plan. Uh, anyway, he's outside the school hunting something or someone. We'll, we'll get to that. But inside the school, which apparently doesn't have the same kind of laser gun camera security system that the school does in x-men evolution uh the kids are completely oblivious they are playing basketball with their new student 
yeah, Maggot, you know, the X-Men character who uh, came on in Siegel and Kelly's runs, whose mutant power is that his digestive system is a couple of armored slugs that burrow out of his belly, eat stuff, and burrow back in. That is such a gloriously fucked up power. I love it. It does fit onto Generation X really well. Yeah, Gen X has always been the team with characters with gross powers, with inconvenient powers, with the kind of powers that take the whole puberty metaphor in a slightly different direction because puberty is, well, it's a magical time, it's a transformative time. It can also it's be terrifying. Horror. Yeah, it's also body horror. It can be terrifying and gross. So Maggot does fit. And this is interesting to me because this is, of course, a school book. This is a book about kids who are probably in the vicinity of high school, right? Right, although I don't know how old Chamber is supposed to be. I've always sort of pegged him as very late teens or early 20s. Maybe that, and Maggot, I also thought, was around that era. Like, I always thought Maggot was a young adult, yes, but definitely an adult. But, I don't know, I guess that works. I mean, this isn't a normal school. This is a school where young people learn to control their powers. And Maggot hasn't really had that kind of tutelage. So, I'm just going to assume that Japheth is, like, I don't know, let's call him... 20-ish, something like that. Does that sound right? Sure. Um, and he is he is still very much himself at the school, you know, cracking wise, um, flirting with Husk, who is is has a um very nice post-breakup haircut. Oh, it's great. I love when uh Maggot is looking at her and he's just got all these hearts floating out of his head, which again is very Gen X. This book is a little bit silly and a little bit cartoonish, and that's like a feature, not a bug. And Maggot, like Jubilee, is pretty damn excited about the time he spent on the X-Men. Boyke, the X-Men are to die for. I wasn't with them very long, but when I was, I was having the time of my life, Strew Bob. The X-Men helped make me who I am today, and that's not me being a Wingat, neither. Think what you want about them, but they're my idols. That's an interesting take on this, because Maggot, I mean, he was excited to be on the X-Men, certainly, but I didn't really get that sort of hero worship thing from him back when he was on the team. Maybe he was just playing it cool. He had that general sense, like, that attitude towards superheroes, at, 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 you know, by and large. Like, he wasn't very specific about it with regards to the X-Men, but I could definitely see them fitting in under that umbrella. Oh, right. Yeah, I remember they were fighting some psychic villain or another. I actually don't even remember who at this point. But his big fantasy was to be a superhero in, like, a traditional superhero costume with his forelock giant and epic because of that. So that's a good point. Yeah, I think this does work. And I like Maggot as this, you know, too-cool-for-school kind of character who's still very earnest. He actually reminds me a little bit of uh, Jesse Aronson over in X-Force of Bedlam, you know? Okay. Alas, Slaughter, who, now that I think about it, it's basically a dwarven hunter from World of Warcraft, shows up when the kids are outside and shoots Eenie and Meenie, Maggot's slugs, with tranquilizer darts. That's why Slaughter is here. He's a, not a big game hunter, a weird game hunter, I guess. He hunts, like, strange Marvel Universe stuff, and uh, he wants Eenie and Meenie as his newest trophies. So... The kids immediately, you know, head out to stop him. Um, Sink sinks with Chamber and is immediately able to use Chamber's energy powers to fly. Which, so one thing I really like about Sink is basically the the getting possessed by Emma Frost principle. The fact that someone who's unfamiliar with your power set is going to be able to use it in radically different ways than you're used to. Oh, totally, yeah. And that's something that's actually being done to cool effect in current X-Men, very much so. Like, X-Men coming out, you know, as this episode releases. I also love the visuals of Sink's powers. Like, we see these abstract geometric rainbow shapes around his hands, then he just rockets into the sky with these chamber-esque energy trails coming out from each of his hands. Uh, the artists do a great job on this. One of the things that throws me about Sync, though, is that he does have this immediate command of the power of, of other people's powers. And if you think about the amount of time and energy that these characters have had to invest in controlling their own powers, the fact that he's immediately able to do so has always read a little askance to me. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things that contributes to him being a hard character to get right, because he's just, like, good at everything, but he's also such a nice, considerate guy that you can't be mad at him, and so he just ends up kind of, like, uh, it's a harsh term, but almost blandly perfect. I want him to have more substance, and I feel like the immediate fluency with other people's powers needs to be either tempered or examined within story. 
And again, that's something I think current X-Men is doing incredibly well. But of course, that's like literal decades after the stuff we're covering right now. So what's happening, you know, back in, in Generation X number 49 at this point? Well, Slaughter is fighting the team, and I love all the equipment he has. He kind of reminds me of a more hunting-focused version of the Executioner. Like, he's got a net to catch pterodactyls in the Savage Land. He's got vibranium body armor to protect an injury he got in Genosha while hunting. He has a tar bomb that he's used in the past to catch a winged horse in Asgard. Like, he's an awful bag of dicks, but he's kind of a fun concept, as, as villains go. And he's also effective. Because the kids end up tied up while Slaughter leaves with his slug prisoners. And Sink comes up with a pretty good solution to this. He's, so Eni and Meanie can eat through anything. But obviously they are, they are out of the picture right now. So Sink sinks with Maggot and creates his own digestive slugs who are able to eat through the ropes. Which is just as horrifying as you might imagine, and which Maggot warns Sink away from doing. But this brings up so many questions. Like, if Sink can just mimic even those extremely physical mutations, like, what would happen if he synced with Glob Herman? Would he be a skeleton covered in paraffin wax? Or, like, what if he syncs up with Phantom X? Would he get his own external brain UFO? And what would happen to those things when the Sink went away? Exactly. Like, we don't see what happens to these slugs he creates. I assume they just burrow back in and are reabsorbed. I don't know, but it's it's really interesting. Like, similarly to how Husk's powers bring up a lot of questions that are never fully explored, Sinks totally do as well. But it works, and the team catches up with Slaughter, just as the real Eni and Meanie have eaten their way out of his backpack and have eaten through all of his equipment. And that's kind of the fight, because without his stuff, Slaughter's just a big guy with a big mustache— and just as they're about to defeat him, he teleports away, saying, hey, you can always capture, like, I don't know, Lockheed or some other mutants or whatever. And Maggot says, well, someone's got to stop this guy. I'm going to go off and do that. I'm going to leave this book that I, I just entered and basically um, pull a Sunfire. And no, if he were Sunfire, he'd join and, and, and then leave again and then rejoin and then re like four or five times. But no, um, so he's, he's going to head off and, and hunt Slaughter. We will never learn how that hunt was resolved because Maggot is going to disappear for years. Uh, he is not, he's going to show up very briefly at a funeral a few months later. And then I think his next appearance or close to his next appearance is going to be his death near the start of the Weapon X series in 2003. Yeah. Like, it's, it's, it's so weird. He's here for one panel of the previous issue and just the A-plot of this one, and that's it. Like, I love Banshee's line when Emma gets back and asked what happened. Emma, that was Maggot from the X-Men. He was going to attend school here. Now he's not. Like, it kind of made sense for him to leave the X-Men to join Generation X, like Jubilee did, but then then this happens. It's like, you know, it's like the writers of, of X-Men handed this birthday present to Jay Ferber, and then Jay Ferber opens it and says he likes it, and then without breaking eye contact with Siegel and Kelly, just drops the birthday present in a nearby trash can. Anyway, Emma Frost heads to Meridian Enterprises in New York City to see her aforementioned sister, Adrian. And Adrian's even more of a hard-ass than Emma. Like, we see her on the phone with her clearly terrified employees, having some kind of a conversation about how she wishes that she had some superhuman muscle for some situation in Transabal, which, uh, by the way, is the nation um, that was brought up in Peter David's Hulk run. And uh, Adrian just laughs in delight at Emma's very serious request like we have emma being earnest if cold talking about how hey she didn't ask her sister for anything during her homeless days and she built her fortune on her own but this request is for some very special children this is a request that she's only making because they're family because we're family emma dear family is for people who can't make friends on their own but Adrian changes her tune after she accidentally uses her psychometric powers, that's getting sort of uh, psychic imprints from objects, on Emma's purse. And she says, yeah, she'll help Emma, as long as she gets to be the new headmistress of this school of very powerful mutants. So that is a hell of a status quo shift and is going to have quite a few reverberations, like big ones, for the rest of the series. But first... The Generation X slash Dracula Annual 1998, Children of the Night. 
Hits is written by Joe Harris, penciled by Tom Coker, inked by Troy Hobbs, colored by Felix Serrano, and lettered by Comicraft. And it's great. It's, yeah, I would, I would, I'm not sure if it's good, but it's definitely great. It's a lot of fun. Um, and I gotta say, I, I stand by my statement from the cold open that Dracula entering the public domain is one of the best things that has happened to human art in the history of, of everything. Oh, 100%. So this was weird timing. Like, there's this story that we're covering now, but I've also been reading through a lot of other 90s stuff, so I just read through all of Mutant X that Dracula factors heavily into, and a friend lent me the Star Trek Lower Decks miniseries, which also has Dracula in it. It has been a Dracutastic couple of weeks. As it should be. So yeah, Dracula, Marvel character. Uh, he was in Tomb of Dracula in the 70s. He was also one of the featured characters in those Marvel value stamps that they gave away back in the day. Um, at this point, he had shown up most recently in Marvel in the first issue of Blade and in the Dracula Lord of the Undead mini, which was kind of a 90s follow-up to the 70s Tomb of Dracula, which came out in response to the fact that the original Tomb of Dracula creators were writing a book for Dark Horse called Curse of Dracula. I guess that's the flip side of Dracula being in the public domain, is you have all these competing Dracula properties going on all the time. No, I, I love that. Like, this is, this is very Council of Cross-Time Draculas. 100%. Uh, listeners, if you haven't read the X-Men 92 series, read it. And not just because we ourselves appear in the uh, opening miniseries. Yeah, no, we'll just read for the Council of Cro Cross-Time Draculas, because... Council of Cross-Time Draculas. Fucking love the art here. The art is pretty. So it's Tom Coker, whom I'm familiar with primarily from the Daredevil Noir series, which was great. Yeah, uh, the inks are great as well from Troy Hubs. Like, we have this kind of heavy, jagged ink style, but the layouts, we have these dramatic panel angles and lots of close-ups of people being, like, terrified or whatever. It's, it's very moody. Okay, the cover, though. So the cover is homage to the famous Uncanny X-Men Annual 6 cover. This is the one with Storm and Dracula. It's an early Sienkiewicz issue. We covered it way, 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 way long ago in like one of one of the first 10 episodes of the podcast when we, we also did Curse of the Mutants and a bunch of other stuff. I, I want to I just take a moment to point out Chambers' absolutely goofy-ass face on this cover because one of the things I appreciate about Coker's version of Chamber is that he looks way worse with his lower face than without it. Yeah, that's a plot point in this issue. He sort of gets his face back, sort of. And he's just really goofy looking. And Jono, I fucking get it. There's a reason I always have a beard. Like, nobody needs to see what's under that facial hair. I, I get it. Keep your scarf on, buddy. I love the idea that he's just sort of normal to slightly goofy looking. Right? He's only like that super mysterious, attractive guy when he's in his, like, wrapped in weirdly leather scarf form. Obviously, this isn't how the shadow works, because the shadow is, is always, like, super handsome. It's just that, you know, when he's wrapped in his, his scarf. God, now I'm thinking about the shadow and wondering if we've actually made the shadow comparison to Chamber, because they're the only two characters I can think of who have the whole lower face covering that starts under the nose. Yeah, that and people who don't know how to wear N95s properly. But, uh, fair point, fictional character-wise. So, anyway... Dracula is holing up in a church in Massachusetts, coincidentally close to the town of Snow Valley, and that's where Generation X is based. And he's hanging out with his thralls, who he's recruited from the local population. And of course, being a proper villain, he's doing a lot of villain narration. And being a proper comic book character in general, he speaks his own name in a fancy logo font. But I am really sad it's not the old 70s logo from Tomb of Dracula, simply because then he would be speaking his name with a giant bat behind it. Man, there are a lot of things to enjoy about this issue, but one of my favorites is the way that Dracula's dialogue is lettered throughout the issue. Like, whoever whoever did this one is clearly just having a blast with it. And this is one of those characters and one of those stories where you can really just sort of go wild with the lettering and it fits the tone. Again, obviously some stuff in logo font, calligraphy, a lot of varied size, a lot of sort of wild varied sized word, word balloons. There's a quote we're going to come to, and I'll talk about this more when we get there. Um, but it's generally pretty delightful. So, as you mentioned, Dracula has a bunch of thralls, but he's got his eye on Chamber. Um, John Starsborg is one of, one of the students of Generation X. And Chamber, as a result, is having creepy dreams within dreams in which Dracula compliments him a lot. And then uh, Paige Guthrie Husk seduces him, and then they explode. I like the way this is drawn. I don't know if this is a deliberate reference, but we have this big panel, I think full-page spread actually, of Chamber tangled up in his bed sheets. It's this, it's this black and white striped bedding, very uh, distinctive and very sort of sharp. 
it reminds me a lot of Mirage tangled up in her own checkerboard betting on the first page of the Demon Bear Saga. Like, that's a hell of a reference if that's what's happening here, but it's subtle enough that it just evokes that without inviting comparisons. And Jubilee, during one of these dreams, or at the end of one of these dreams, hears his psionic scream and goes to check on him, only to be met with a glare and glowing red eyes. She's a friend, he thinks. Someone concerned for his well-being. But the voice in his dream belongs only to him. Not to her, or to anybody else. He is so powerful, it says. And he can have anything he wants. And there's this great horror comic close-up of Jubilee biting her lower lip in terror and Chamber looking terrifying with these red, Kirby crackling eyes. I would also like to point out that in this scene, Jubilee has fuzzy white bunny slippers, like Boom Boom's fuzzy pink bunny slippers. As we said back in the Extinction Agenda ages ago, the two of them are rivals because they're just too similar. The next day is Halloween, and the kids make the thematically appropriate plan to go see Nosferatu. Meanwhile, on the train back from Kentucky, Paige has a dream about being attacked by Vampire Chamber. So, the astute listener may recall, like, five or ten minutes ago when we said that Husk just got back from visiting her family in Kentucky. And this is weird, and it's actually um, a subject of some mild disagreement whether this annual takes place before or after the two issues we just covered. My understanding—and tell me what you think, Jay— But my understanding is that Paige gets back from visiting her sick mom, and thus her family, in the two issues we just covered, and then she separately visits her brother Cannonball, I assume in San Francisco, where he is with X-Force, after that. Because Cannonball wasn't there with the rest of the family for most of that first visit. Or maybe there was just some confusion between different editors and writers. I don't know, what do you think? I think the latter is more likely, but the former is a pretty good no-prize explanation. Yes, another no prize. Joe Harris's narration in this this entire issue is just a delight. How sweet young love thinks the Lord of the Vampires. Sweet moonlight touches him like a lover. It is All Hallows Eve, and Dracula is going out. One of the things I love about the narration in this comic is you could reasonably imagine a thunderclap after like every narration box, and it wouldn't get old. And it, it would be a really, really, like, old-school thunderclap. The, the, the ones that are really obviously someone shaking a sheet of metal. Oh, yeah, yeah, this story has a Foley artist, no question. So anyway, at the movie theater where they're playing Nosferatu, as is appropriate, uh, some trick-or-treaters show up and find the ticket-taker to be dead. They assume it must just be, like, a Halloween decoration. But let's talk about these trick-or-treaters. They're ciphers for Peanuts characters. Yeah, yeah, one of them is definitely Charlie Brown. Like, there's the ghost outfit with too many holes cut in it. And he only gets—he only has, he has, he has a treat bag that's just full of rocks. Yeah, one of the kids is named Broder. Everyone's saying good grief and calling each other blockheads. And, like, this is silly, yes, but even they are drawn in that moody, almost, like, Mike Mignola-esque, heavily inked style. So it actually just makes it feel more like kind of a B-grade horror movie, which is perfect. You talked about the moodiness, and I think that's something that's really, really well conveyed in the art. Like, this comic feels very fundamentally, like, late autumnal. Yeah, yeah, it really does. I I think that's a good point. Horror, but also just straight-up autumnal. So, meanwhile, Jono leaves the movie to have dramatic feelings about his reflection in the bathroom. And he is attacked from behind by the now-undead ticket-taker, who rips off his scarf, his face-covering, and I think replaces it with another one, because when he leaves the bathroom, Jono's scarf now has has a big D on it for Dracula. Those of you who are familiar with, with Dracula's first X-Men appearance will recall that this is, in fact, a, a, a Dracula thing. This is a thing he does. He gives out scarves, he gives out monogrammed scarves to his victims and would-be victims. If Dracula likes you, he gives you the D. And now that one wet leg song is stuck in my head, look it up, it's very catchy. It's hilarious! Like, Dracula is so ridiculous in the Marvel Universe. I mean, he's ridiculous everywhere, but especially here. His D is also in the same font as the lettering of Daredevil's logo, which is a detail I just enjoy. Do you think? I mean, I'm not a Daredevil scholar. You are a bit more. Um, Did Daredevil get his costume from Dracula? Did Dracula give Matt Murdock the D? I have 
frankly, no idea. No, um, Matt Murdock canonically sewed his costume. Or at least originally, he sewed his yellow and red costume using touch to distinguish between the colors of fabric. Um, because there, there's a lot of conversation about superpowers and disability to be had about Daredevil, but that was definitely a thing that happened in the first issue. Well, then. See, smell would make sense because of dyes and pigments. Touch less so. Yeah, yeah, fair. Uh, anyway, so that's going on at the movie theater. Jono just got the D from Dracula's Ghoul. Uh, back at the school, however, Jubilee is just hanging out watching TV and, uh, answers the door to the aforementioned trick-or-treaters, inviting whoever's at the door in without thinking about it. Which means... Yeah, and she, of course, inadvertently welcomes Dracula into the house, which leads to the best dialogue in the entire comic. As Dracula, floating, yells in, in, in fonts whose variety you can guess from the intonation. I am known by many names, child. The Wallach, the dragon, or the devil himself. The times I have been worshipped. All times I have been feared. I am Nosferatu, Vampire, Lord of all vampires! What? Do you think you're Dracula or something? I love Jubilee and I love Dracula and I love comic books. So I gotta admit something here. Your Dracula voice is lovely. Uh-huh. Um, but, you know, I have a one-year-old and... Uh, we watch, well, we don't watch a ton, but we listen to a lot of Sesame Street stuff and read Sesame Street books and things. And, um, at this point, I, I hear the voice of Dracula as, as just Count Von Count. I mean, you're not wrong. As much as I love being sexy Dracula, Count Von Count is equally valid. You know, there's a multiverse out there and no universe is better or worse than any other. So sexy Dracula and Count Von Count, they're both members of the Council of Crosstime Draculas. 441 episodes of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men. Ah, 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 ah. <laughs> Give me a sec. <laughs> Oh, I'm so pleased by that. So Jubilee manages to resist Count Dracula's hypnotic gaze and sprays fireworks at him, which buys her time to run, and it turns out Dracula's actually here for Husk anyway. He is, however, super grossed out by her powers, which I appreciate. Yeah, like, he goes to bite her, and she just rips all of her skin off, and then there's just a pile of skin, like, that's sort of arm-shaped at one point, and Dracula just looks really disgusted. One of the things I like about the art here is that Dracula actually does look very monstrous when he's not specifically being charming, and I think that's a good Dracula trait. Yeah, but I I love that his response to Paige's powers is basically, Ew, what the hell? Yeah, like, this guy's a lord of the undead, and that he's just, man, that's disgusting. Teenagers, man. Speaking of teenagers, one of my legitimately favorite panels of art in this entire issue is once Jubilee realized what's happened, she's just sitting wide-eyed under a table looking absolutely terrified with this extreme close-up on her face as she just says to herself over and over, I love Dracula in the house. I love Dracula in the house. That is such a Jubilation Lee thing. Like, she's just being sort of like, wait, what is this, a joke? And then suddenly realizes, oh, I fucked up. To be fair, you don't really expect Dracula to just kind of show up. I mean, I guess you should if you're a superhero, but or in the Marvel Universe in general, he's probably just just drops in on people for for holidays. Yeah, if a traveler comes by your house, you have to be kind of careful because it's probably Odin, but it could be Dracula. Do you invite him in? I don't know. Might go bad, might go well. One thing that does go well with inviting Dracula in, though, is again, this art— Like, Dracula, as he's terrifying everybody, elevates all the way to the ceiling with this just impossibly long trail of black cape below him. He's he's elegant and monstrous at the same time, which is definitely the combination that you should be striving for if you're drawing Dracula. Totally. And, like, you can go in different directions. I mean, we are noted fans of sexy Dracula, which this is most pointedly not, but this is a great way to do it. So, speaking of Dracula and dr- versions of Dracula, um, my friend Kel, uh, Kel McDonald, who, who draws, who's best known for the webcomic Sorcery 101, but has, has drawn a, and written a ton of different stuff, um, has, has a theory of, of class striations in horror that I really love. 
which is that um, vampires pretty much always represent the aristocracy in terms of their relationship to other characters, their role as predators, but also as, as sort of aspirational romanticized predators. Werewolves are kind of the middle class or the proletariat. And ghouls um, and zombies are are the the lower class and it are, are the lower classes. And and they will go into much, much more length about this, Cal will, um, if you if you hit them up on social media for it. But it's really interesting and it's a filter that really changed the way I interacted with a lot of horror. Yeah, yeah. Horror has always been metaphor, and uh, that's certainly one of the the big lenses you could look at it through. I love that. So in the car on the way home from Nosferatu, uh, Jono Chamber gets a sudden psionic flash that something has happened to Paige and, and rushes home um, to find that Paige is gone and there is a big D painted on the wall in the same font as the scarf. And I really appreciate Dracula's attention to branding. Dracula gave the house the D. So they track Dracula to his church headquarters. Everyone fights, and Dracula offers to fix Chamber's face, but it's just an illusion, and also I think it's mostly so Dracula can bite him more conveniently, since normally Chamber doesn't really have a throat. It's like a Dracula could bite a person wherever. Yeah, but, you know, Dracula is very into tradition and doing things in a certain way. Mm, it is more theatrical that way. That's fair. Uh, the fight's pretty fun. We won't go into too much detail, but there is one panel I love, which is of Banshee and Sync, syncing with Banshee's powers, both doing a sonic scream simultaneously. And we see all these random overlapping circles, like the way Havoc's power is drawn sometimes coming out of them. And these sketchy rays of color coming from behind them, filling the background, since that's Sync's power signature, that rainbow thing. It's so cool. Paige, for her part, turns her skin to wood and tries to stake Dracula but misses his heart, but then Jono rips down the curtains and, oh, hey, it's already morning outside, so there's daylight. Whoopsie. And the whole building collapses and disappears, leaving Paige to insist that none of it was real, except Jono still has fang marks somewhere on his body. It is absolutely unclear in the art where they are, but they're there. I think it's on his big toe. That would be the least dramatic place. Maybe his nose. Dracula's just biting people's schnozzes. And that wraps up this this annual um, fairly, fairly neatly, or at least as neatly as Dracula stories get wrapped up. And brings us to your questions. So Melanie emailed us to ask, what do you think would happen if Everett synced with Legion? Oh, if Sync synced with Legion. That's a really good question. So, yeah, this brings up a fairly critical secondary question for me, which is whether Legion's multiple personalities are a reflection of his mutant power or vice versa. And if the latter, what's his base power? Like, what exactly would, would Sync be syncing with? So this is a matter of much debate and retcon. Um, Legion's been focused on in a number of different ways. Um, I most think of Sysburyer's X-Men Legacy run, but of course there's also all the early stuff. There's Age of X-Men. There's what Sy's been doing with Legion recently with all the uh, Legion of X stuff. I think overall Legion's power is to create spontaneous mutations within himself. Uh, there's no upper limit as to what he can do. He's very much an Omega level. He can like you know, not even rewrite reality, but like redefine reality almost. At one point, he wrote himself out of existence to prevent himself from being a threat. It was a whole thing. But uh, as far as the independent personalities, it's unclear whether those are directly tied to each power or if that's just an artifact of David's own mental state. He's been through a lot. He's got some mental illness going on. And so we've since we've definitely seen Sync, as you mentioned, Jay, manifest people's powers without any of the drawbacks and like instantly get them i think it would make perfect sense to interpret that to say that everett can sponta can spontaneously create different mutations and like there's nothing tied to it he can just control them i don't know if that would be narratively satisfying though like i much prefer the idea that yes david haller does have these personalities that come up every time he has a new power and that's inconvenient but that he's adapted to that, that he spent so much time learning to control that, learning to integrate that, that he makes it work. So the personalities are partly a manifestation of mental illness, but partially literally an adaptation to his power set. That's the way I choose to interpret it, yeah. And I mean, you know, maybe Psy would have a different interpretation, maybe Chris Claremont back in the day would have a different one. That's the one I like best. 
And I think that would be the most fun thing. It could make Sync more interesting, too, to have him try to sync these powers, and he just sort of can't handle it because he doesn't have that lifetime of dedicated adaptation that Legion does. Frank asked us on Blue Sky, which member of the X-Men or adjacent team pronounces Cable's name similar to the way Britta on Community pronounces Bagel? And for those unfamiliar with, with Community, one of the running jokes is that Britta pronounces Bagel Bagel. So this, this, is, this is who pronounces Cable's name, Cabal. It's funny every time. I don't know how it's funny every time. So when we were discussing this, we had both independently and immediately landed on Tabitha Smith meltdown. But I also think this feels like a very Sunspot move, and specifically Sunspot doing it to, like, mildly troll Cable. Yes, or I could see Monet from Generation X just insisting that's the true correct way and no one knows how to pronounce it properly, and that's just, like, another thing she can lord over everyone else, and she insists that everyone else in the world is wrong except her. Of course. She lives in New York. Now, we are an entirely listener-supported podcast, and some of those tiers of support come with acknowledgement on the show from a range of fictional characters and concepts— and um, today, the microphone goes to the somewhat unlikely Sexy Maggot. Hey, Manolis Bamvunis. The girls told me a moy man was up across the lawn, but they undersold it. You want to join me in my dingus down here? Because believe me, Mats, the in and out can take some getting used to, but there's nothing more satisfying in the end. I, I was talking about Eni and Meanies through Bob. You have something else in mind, Boyke? And you mind if the girls stick around? They like to watch. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in New Fairfield, Connecticut, standing in for Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. Special thanks to Max Carlton for cold open assistance. New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay in the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. And please, take a moment to rate and review us on your favorite podcasting platform. It really helps. Next week, the X-Men fight Flag Smasher. And Doctor Doom explains X-History. Forty, forty-eight issues of Generation X. Forty-nine, forty-nine issues of Generation X, and an annual. Ah, ha, 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 ha.